Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. Welcome back to True Crime Exposed, where every week you'll be able to find a new true crime case to binge. Please go visit our website at www.truecrimeexposedpodcast.com. Remember, guys, we just set this up and we are posting every episode we do so you can find pictures and information on each case, as well as a lot of other fun things. You can also find pictures on the cases we cover on all our social media. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and now we are also on Facebook. On Facebook, just look up True Crime Exposed. On Instagram, find us at True Crime Expod, True Crime Expod. On TikTok, just find us at True Crime Exposed Podcast, all spelled out. And on Twitter, find us at True Crime Exposed. But there's an E missing. It's True Crime X-P-O-S-E-D. And make sure you guys go leave us a five-star review if you love our show. And if you don't love it, then you don't have to listen. But if you want to keep listening but you have a little bit of criticism, go ahead and email that to us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. We're happy to take any suggestions. We also accept case suggestions there at that email and personal stories. Today's case is a case filled with scandal. Scandal that is so out there that it seems hard to wrap your mind around. That murder could be known by so many people who collude with each other to cover it up. Throughout the episode, I just kept finding myself coming back to being like, what? How? Like, how can this be real? And unfortunately, scandals like this were very common. Hopefully, in today's world, scandals like this are dwindling as we fight against violent crime and stand up for what is right. But unfortunately, this case isn't a one-off. It was very common. Our victim today is not alone in the way that she suffered or the way that her death was not handled correctly. Something like this is hard to believe. But when you dive into a case like this, it opens your eyes to the fact that there are monsters everywhere creating scandals going unnoticed all around us. Are you ready for today's case? All right, so let's just get right into the bizarreness of this case. So it's in the early morning hours of April 17th, 1960, when Nicholas and Josefina Garza nervously drive to the McAllen, Texas Police Department. Right now it's about three in the morning and the couple is on edge because their daughter, Irene, never returned home the night before. She had gone to church on the night of April 16th, but her parents haven't heard from her since. Even as the late night had crept in on Saturday, April 16th, they worried, but they pushed those worries to the side, assuming that maybe Irene had just stayed for the midnight service. But she definitely would have been home by 3 a.m. And even though she is an adult, her parents just couldn't sleep. It wasn't like her to stay out all night and not let them know that she wouldn't be back home. 
So it's in the middle of the night on Easter morning that Nicholas and Josefina report their 25-year-old daughter, Irene Garza, as missing. Police take this report seriously after Irene's parents explain the circumstances around her not returning home and how they had driven to the church she attended that night, and they had found her car. It was parked there about a block away from the Sacred Heart Church. So did something happen to her on her short walk either to or from the church? The report is taken and the search is immediately on. It's only a little more than 24 hours after Irene was reported missing that a trail of Irene's items are found on a nearby road there in McAllen. So a teacher from nearby Edinburgh, Texas, spots a black purse laying in a field. And this was near the intersection of North McColl Road and Farm to Market Road 495. This teacher is like, okay, random that a purse would be laying here in the middle of a field. So he looks inside to see if he could find a clue of how to return it to whoever lost it. But he's a little taken back when he realizes that this is Irene Garza's purse. And he knows this family. So immediately he takes it to the Garza home and search efforts along that road intensify. It's later that same day that her left shoe was found. And then soon her lace veil was also discovered. All of these items were a short distance away from each other and finding them ignites the largest volunteer search to date in the Rio Grande Valley. So people just came out out in masses to support the Garza family. And those items discovered along the road didn't necessarily give a good indication of what could have happened, but everyone still held on to hope, hope that Irene was safe somewhere. So when Irene's parents weren't out searching for her, they were home filled with devastation, lost in puddles of tears and worry, but one day their home phone rings. And on the other end of the line is a woman's voice saying, hey, it's me, it's Irene, I've been kidnapped, someone took me, and I've been taken to this hotel in Hidalgo. And they're kind of like, wait, what? (laughs) It doesn't really sound like Irene, but Nicholas and Josefina jump at the opportunity to possibly be brought back together with her. So authorities are made known of the phone call and they start investigating it only to determine that this was just a prank call, a sick joke, which is so annoying. I I don't understand how people can do that. No, literally what is wrong with you? Yeah. Why would you do that? It's like so weird to me, like whether someone's just by themselves and they want to like mess with a family because they're like disgusting people or teenagers pranking each other to like make this call. It's like, that's not funny. And you're not funny and you're annoying for the rest of your life now. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to prank people all the time when I was little. I mean, that's kind of what we did for fun since we didn't have uh-huh. social media or anything. Oh, but, yeah, I bet. I mean, I would never even think to do that kind of prank. No, something has to be like literally missing in your brain if you think that's okay. Ugh, or, well, I guess, I mean, was it a prank or was it did it have something to do with the case right like if someone called kind of to throw people off yeah yeah that'd be kind of crazy you know it's like some lead that's a dead end yeah to like mess mess it up yeah either way so sad for her family like that would suck yeah 
Like you kind of get this little glimmer of hope, even though, you know, I'm sure they could tell like this is not our daughter, but even just in the back of their minds, like maybe. I could see how they they could think that like they wanted it to be her so bad that it's like, well, was it? It could have been. Maybe she just didn't sound the same. Oh, so it's just really sad. And this cruel phone call obviously was really devastating to the Garza family, but they wouldn't have to wait much longer before finding Irene. But it wasn't the outcome they had dreamed of. On April 21st, 1960, after 72 hours of intense searches done by police, National Guard, and volunteers, Irene Garza, who was 25 years old, was found dead. She was floating face down in a canal only a few miles away from where her purse had been discovered. So when her families are notified, their hearts are obviously torn out of their chests. They fall to their knees. They're sobbing. And Irene was taken to the medical examiner's office where an autopsy was performed. She was found to be fully clothed in the same clothing that she had left her home in on the night of April 16th, but her underwear and her shoes were missing, besides that one shoe that was found along the road. Yeah. Yeah, so they were missing, but one was found. And then her shirt was also found to be unbuttoned. And the autopsy report states that Irene was raped and beaten before being killed. There was bruising that covered both of Irene's eyes and then it extended across the right side of her face. And her cause of death was ultimately determined to be suffocation. Quote, evidence of strangulation could not be found, but suffocation could have been carried out by placing a cloth over the mouth and nose, especially if the subject was unconscious, end quote. I can't imagine, like, going out that way. No. Oh, my gosh. I think that's, like, a big part of why, like, true crime interests me so bad. It's, like, because I feel so bad for these victims because I can't even imagine, like, the end of their life. It's just, like, the scariest and most insane thing I can think of. I hate it. I know. I feel like I comfort myself by thinking like your body's pretty smart so like obviously you're gonna be scared and stuff but then I think your body like your brain kind of flips off or like you don't remember like traumatic stuff or you know what I mean yeah yes and I do think that can kind of be like a comfort in this case because I did read a lot that she was probably unconscious even when she was raped and so I don't know you know obviously something happened that made her unconscious but I think when she was like actually assaulted and killed she was unconscious so yeah now when investigators start into their murder investigation they of course first talk with those closest to Irene family friends co-workers and ex-boyfriends but one by one these people were ruled out Unfortunately, they had no evidence to go on since, like, blood or semen seemed to have been washed away by the canal. But they worked really hard to pinpoint a suspect. There were about 500 people questioned in this case, including local sex offenders. And through all of this, almost 50 polygraphs were given, but everyone was seeming to pass these tests. Police were desperately hoping that Irene's killer would soon be brought to justice. They really wanted peace for her family. 
So there was a $2,500 reward for information in this case um, put up, and that was actually larger than any other reward ever offered in a murder investigation there in the Rio Grande Valley. And as time went on, local South Texas businessmen, they actually added $10,000 to this reward money. And remember, this is in 1960, so $10,000 then would actually be almost $95,000 today in 2020. So this really was a huge reward for the time. Yeah, a good amount. Yeah. So it's one day that a waitress from nearby Edinburgh, Texas calls authorities. She just had a very concerning conversation with a man who she was serving at the restaurant where she worked. She tells police this guy just told her he was responsible for the murder of Irene Garza. And immediately she's like sick to her stomach and she knew she had to get police involved. But when police talk with this man, he's like, no, no, that was just a joke. I had been drinking a lot that night and I don't know why I said that. And police do determine that this was the truth. The guy was, in fact, just, quote unquote, joking. Again, like, this is not a joke, people. Why would you joke about that? I know. These people are a bunch of sickos. It's so stupid because I just listened to this Dateline podcast where Uh uh, this lady helped, like, plan the murder of her husband's ex-wife. I listened to the same one. Did you? But she confessed it to like a guy that she knew that they were like mm-hmm. friends. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, I was just trying to show off and look like I was tough. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's funny because I listened to that this week and she pissed me off. I was like, who oh, is this girl? And I was just trying to impress him because he was a criminal before. Like that's not going to impress anybody. I wouldn't think. Yeah, like, good, good job. You really impressed someone by telling them that you helped your husband murder someone. Everyone loves that. Yeah, yeah, that that's gonna get you, man. She was a straight up idiot. That's funny. You listened to it, too. I was so annoyed listening to it. (laughs) Like, don't say things. I mean, she really did it. So that was like her excuse. But it's like, so dumb. But even like this guy, like, why would you say you were joking? Right? Like, couldn't I, I mean, I guess I don't know what you would say, like, in response. Like, oh, I don't know why I said that. I was drunk. But, like, you're going to say, oh, no, it was just a joke. No. Like, that's not funny. No one's laughing at that. So it didn't end up being that guy? No. So this guy had nothing to do with it. Literally, he was just saying it for who knows what. Ugh. So regardless of police not getting far between their interviews and their polygraphs, they had found one piece of evidence. It was discovered on April 27, 1960, after six days were spent draining the canal that Irene was found in. On the bottom of this canal, there was a light green Eastman Codaslide 35mm viewer with an electric cord plug-in attached. This is basically like a photo slide viewer. It kind of looks like a mini blow dryer to me. And it was found just feet from where they believe Irene's body was placed in the canal. And after this discovery, McAllen Police Chief Clint Mussey told reporters that, quote, it could have been inadvertently placed in the canal with the body or could have been thrown away after having been stolen. We are seeking any information that may shed light on the former ownership of this viewer. We are doing everything possible to run down any lead which might be even remotely connected with the crime, end quote. So what is it? Like, the purpose of it is to view pictures? I think so. Like, maybe, 
I was kind of thinking because it looks like it plugs in maybe you put like picture slides in it and it kind of looked like maybe it displayed those pictures onto a wall or something okay you could like view them you know Mm -hmm. what's that called again like a projector uh, projector yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I think something like that but I I don't really know it's before our time (laughs) so let's dive into Irene Garza a little more so she was born on November 15th, 1934. We know that her parents are Nicholas and Josephina, and they own this little dry cleaning business there in McAllen, Texas. They lived on the south side of McAllen until her parents' business really started to become successful. At that point, Irene was now a teenager, and her family moved up to a more affluent area in the north side of McAllen. And Irene would attend McAllen High School, where she, as a shy young girl, was able to blossom and find her talents. She was actually the first Latina at McAllen High School to perform as a twirler and head drum majorette. And once she graduated from high school, she used her skills as a twirler for her talent portion of a local pageant. And in 1958, she was crowned Miss All South Texas Sweetheart. And that same year, she was also the homecoming queen at Pan American College. So you can tell she was like very talented and ambitious, along with being like absolutely beautiful. Outgoing, probably. Yeah. It sounds like she kind of had like a shy and like sweet personality. And then like these talents of hers kind of like brought her out. And like when she found something she loved to do, she could like really like be herself. And like you said, like be outgoing with it. So when she studied at that college, she studied to become a teacher. And at the time of her murder, she was actually a second grade teacher at an elementary school down in the south side of McAllen. So that same area where she grew up. And she was teaching indigent students there, meaning she was teaching students that came from like impoverished homes, homes that may have not been able to afford for these kids the necessities of life. So she was basically a bad A who had a huge heart. This job was super challenging, but she really loved it. She had actually written this letter to her friend just before her murder, where she wrote about her new role at the school as secretary of her parent teacher association. And she went on to explain how, although she's always been shy and even lacked some self-confidence, she was finding a lot of fulfillment in her work. And because of this, she was gaining this newfound confidence in herself. And she was so young still. I feel like nowadays kids aren't figuring their crap out by 25. I know. Yeah. She was doing really good for herself. And like, I think she was like loving that and growing up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was pretty young to like get it all together. Yeah. So it's in that same letter that she actually explains to her friend the deep connection she continued building within her church. Irene was Catholic and she told this friend that she was attending daily mass and communion and that going to her church daily gave her like tons of comfort. Well, remember that photo viewer found in the canal, the one piece of evidence found in this case. It was connected to a man named John Fate, who was 27 years old. Police had brought John in only two days after that April 27th day that the photo viewer was found. And they connected it to him after another man came forward saying that that item was John's. This man knew that John Fate had paid cash for that photo viewer from Freddy's Professional Pharmacy one year earlier in 1959. 
And eventually, John admits that the photo viewer was in fact his, but he's not sure how it got into the canal. I mean, remember the police, they did say that this item could have been placed in the canal with the body, but it also could have been just randomly thrown in there after being stolen. But John Fate, he had a much bigger connection to Irene than this little photo viewer. John was a priest in the Sacred Heart Church and had been there ever since he completed his seminary training over in San Antonio, Texas. And if you remember, this was the same Catholic church that Irene attended the last time she was seen alive on April 16th. But there were a lot of people that saw Irene there that night. Many others were around. So why would John stand out? Well, he was the priest that heard Irene's confession that night. And not only did he listen to her confession, but he did it in this very unconventional way. So he had Irene go with him to the rectory to give her confession. It seems to me that the rectory might be like a building of residence, like a rector from the church may live there or something like that. I'm not sure because I don't know a lot about the Catholic church. I, I don't. But I know it's not where John was like living or residing, so I'm not sure exactly what the rectory was. But what I did find out is that this was a very unusual way to take a confession. Face-to-face confessions alone were not performed, let alone at the rectory. And church members that were questioned did speak to the fact that John's confession line moved very slowly on the night of April 16th because he actually left the sanctuary multiple times. And after the midnight mass was performed, other priests took notice to scratches they had seen on John's hands. Both of these things made John look really suspicious to police, but he had an explanation for it all. I mean, sort of. So he starts off by saying he never took Irene to the rectory for confession. But eventually he is like, never mind, I did take her to the rectory for for confession, but it wasn't anything strange. And me leaving the sanctuary, well, I had to because I broke my glasses. He goes on to say how he has this really annoying habit where he fidgets with his glasses while listening to confession, and he just so happened to have broken them. So this is why John says he had to leave, and he left to drive over to the church's pastoral house where he was residing. It was only a short drive, but he ended up being gone for longer than expected because he had to climb the building. He had forgotten his keys, and he couldn't get in the door. So he climbed up the brick building and into the window on the second floor. This is how he got those scratches on his hands. That brick just was too sharp. He says that the back of his hands were just sliding along the the brick while he climbed. Mm, He has a lot of excuses. Yeah, it's like, oh, wow, mm -hmm, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) Now, John was one of the people to take a polygraph, but just like the others, police determined that he passed the polygraph, though they weren't quite buying his story about what had happened on the night Irene went missing. And there was something else strange about him. There were some rumors floating around before Irene's murder that John was involved in another attack on a Catholic woman. It was three weeks before the murder that 19-year-old Maria America Guerra. Guerra. Guerra, okay. Actually, if you want to be specific, it's probably Guerra. Yeah, I can't roll my R's. (laughs) (laughs) 
So it was three weeks before the murder that 19-year-old Maria America Guerra was sexually assaulted while kneeling at the communion rail at another Catholic church there in the McAllen area. This happened on March 23, 1960. Quote, he grabbed me and tried to stuff a rag in my mouth and I started fighting back. He grabbed me down towards the floor and kept me down with his hands on my mouth, end quote. And during this attack, Maria ends up biting her attacker's finger and she starts to scream, ultimately getting away from him. And this attack was reported to the police and after Irene's murder, law enforcement created a lineup of suspects for Maria to look at and they included John Fate in this lineup. Maria did positively identify John as her attacker. John even admitted to visiting another priest at that church the very same day of the attack, but he denies ever doing anything to Maria. And although law enforcement felt that they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him in Irene's murder, they could charge him in Maria's assault. In those three weeks, with the rumors swirling around, the church leaders had actually discouraged people from even considering that a priest could possibly be involved in a violent crime. So until he was connected to Irene's murder, he wasn't reported as someone who could have committed the sexual assault of Maria. So John is charged with the assault on Maria Guerra, but the trial ended with a hung jury, leaving the option for John to be charged a second time. It's in 1962, two years after the murder of Irene, that John is set to face that second trial. But he wants to avoid that at all costs, so he instead enters a plea of no contest to a misdemeanor aggravated assault charge. And his punishment, uh, yeah, his punishment, guess what it was? Guess it. Probation? A $500 fine. Oh my gosh. That's all. Gets a misdemeanor a charge and then has to pay a $500 fine. That's like probation is worse than just paying a fine. Yeah, it is. Like he wasn't being monitored at all. $500. $500 for the sexual assault of a woman in the church that you are priest at. $500. And he is allowed to continue being a priest. Oh my gosh. Disgusting. So frustrating. So, regardless of John Fight being the only identified suspect in the case of Irene Garza, he wasn't charged and her case instead turned cold. But it was so obvious that he did it, right? Like, sure, there wasn't this overwhelming amount of evidence, but this photo viewer was tied to the crime scene and to him, along with that overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence. Yet police still won't charge him. And unfortunately, it's later revealed why. That this case was probably one where the Catholic Church and law enforcement were in agreement to protect the outcome. Why? I hate how churches get involved in that. Frustrating. Like, how? Like, let's cover it up. There were some really big scandals like this within this church. And it's just, like, sad because it put... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it puts their members, like, literally at risk. Like, the good people in their church are in danger because of these, like, crazy scandals that seem like... It doesn't even seem real to me that people can do stuff like this and cover stuff up. I'm sure this guy did it to more than just those two as well. Oh, I bet. So, after John's 1962 trial, 
the Catholic Church sends him away to Assumption Abbey, which was a Trappist monastery in Missouri. This Trappist monastery seems to be a home to monks within the Catholic Church. A monk is a member of a religious order who lives a communal life in a monastery, abbey, or priory under a monastic, monastic rule of life. I read that monks must remain busy. They also must stay silent unless they have to speak. And I'll explain in more detail later why exactly John was sent here to practice as a monk in the Catholic Church, but it seems pretty obvious. It's this strict form of their religion where secrets aren't likely to slip with the lack of speaking. Mm -hmm. Very obviously sent there to just kind of like shut him up, be like really strict in the church and just kind of like keep him hidden there. That does seem obvious. And I guess they keep like super good records of like all their moves of priests and stuff. And that's kind of why a lot of this stuff like in their scandals like were able to be proven from back then. Mm -hmm. But even with you know them not being able to speak a lot. John couldn't keep himself from telling his secret. An abbot of this monastery approaches another monk named Del Tacni, and he tells him that he has learned of something very disturbing. John had told this abbot that he killed someone. So this dude is telling Del like um you really need to like think about if he should be a monk. So he asked Del to counsel John for a while and determine what this was all about, and if John did have what it took to be a monk. And as John grows closer with Dell, he becomes comfortable eventually confessing that he not only hurt one lady, but he actually killed another. But Dell continues to let John live there and practice as a monk, later on saying that at this time, he just didn't feel like it was his job to judge John. Because I feel like there's privacy, right? Like if you confess your sins and stuff, they don't have to turn that over to the police. I did read that. Yes, that he said um, there's like, and again, I don't super understand the church, but there are like laws of like privacy in confession. So like if he was saying this in some confession, whatever, I don't know what you have to do to be in confession with somebody, but this guy didn't necessarily, I think, legally have to tell, maybe. I don't know if that's a law. Like, Yeah, that just seems so wrong. Yeah. Is it a law with the government or is it just a law within the church? Uh, I mean... Or like kind of both back then. I think it's both. Because that seems crazy to me. Like I get it with attorneys. Like attorneys don't have to say anything if their client, you know like confesses to them but it seems like I don't really care if someone confesses to you in a church like you still have to tell on them you should do it to do the right thing and also like if someone confesses murder to you it is a hundred percent your job and your right to judge them judge them yeah so so this guy doesn't do anything yep this guy just lets John continue living and again just felt like it wasn't his place to tell on John. And then eventually John just gets sick of living the monastic, monastic, I don't know how to say that word, monastic lifestyle. So he asked to leave and was then sent by the church to Jemez Springs in New Mexico. And this was a treatment retreat for troubled priests. The church was ran by male ministry dedicated to leading brothers with difficulties. 
literally seems to me like it's one of the places that the Catholic Church would send priests who were accused of misconduct, which is actually a thing. It's proven that there at least used to be places like this for priests who quote-unquote struggled. One man described Gemma's Springs at this time as a place of last resort for some of the church's most troubled priests, the last place to go if you want to stay in the church. So it's basically like this place where tons of priests who are struggling with sexual abuse and other like bad forms of misconduct go. I don't get it. Put them all together. Maybe I don't understand or I'm not like that forgiving of a person. I should maybe be better, but. Yeah, no, I think they were a little too forgiving of their priests at this time. Right. Yeah. (laughs) They took it too far for sure. Now, John, he didn't go here as like a priest attending the retreat. He went there as a staff member and he eventually worked his way into a supervisory role. Now, during his time here, there was a priest by the name of Father James Porter who came into the center after being discovered to have molested children in the 1960s. And it was John himself who cleared James Porter for placement in another parish, meaning he was allowed to be sent to another church as a performing priest. So one sexual predator is clearing another sexual predator to continue his service as a priest. Oh my gosh. And that James Porter, he went on for 30 years to abuse children. He actually was eventually defrocked, meaning that his rights to perform ministry were removed. And he was sentenced to 20 years in prison after being convicted of molesting 28 children. But he admitted to sexually abusing children of both sexes for 30 years, starting in the 1960s. Wow. Yeah, he, I think, is at the center of that big, big scandal of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. Like, do you kind of remember when all of that blew up? Oh, yeah. Okay, guys, I had to pause and take just a minute to tell you about Hydronique Hydration. These little drink packets are life-changing. Do you suffer from headaches or feeling dehydrated when you're working out? Or do you need a little pick-me-up when you're hungover? Hydronique Hydration are electrolyte powder drink packets, and this company started in the midst of the pandemic. The founder of Hydronique Hydration, a frontline healthcare worker, started developing constant headaches. And there was this landmark research study published early during the pandemic showing that up to 81% of frontline healthcare workers developed new headaches. Um, no thank you. And this was mainly because of their personal protective equipment. He was looking for a healthy drink that had all the necessary vitamins and minerals, but without the sugar. Something that was keto-friendly and healthy, but most of these powdered drinks on the market have tons of sugar and caffeine. He created Hydronique Hydration, which is sugar-free, keto-friendly, plant-based, and antioxidant-rich. Their product contains elderberry, which has immune-boosting properties for support during cold and flu season. So if you're having trouble with eating and drinking healthy during your busy day in 2022, and you want a sugar-free, keto-friendly vitamin drink, give Hydronique Hydration a try. There are 30 electrolyte powder packets in a pouch, which is perfect for a one-month supply. You can visit the website www.hydroniquehydration.com. 
www.hydroniquehydration.com. Or you can search for Hydronique Hydration on Amazon.com where they are offering a discount coupon at checkout for the next week. So yeah, literally, if you look up James Porter, it's this huge thing. The first thing that pops up is like a place where you can make your claim if you were a victim of his. Like this literally is one of their biggest scandals. And it's this other creepo John who freaking allowed him to go on continue serving. And why would he even be in charge of that? I know. That is disgusting. And people knew. He murdered someone. Yeah. And people in their church knew. And yes, people knew. So James Porter, he's described as one of the most dangerous and depraved sexually offensive priests. And there's this attorney who has represented many of James's victims. And he stated, quote, the reality that fate himself, a criminal, was placed in a position of power, supervision, and direction of other criminal priests is a public safety nightmare, end quote. So like you said, like, why? Why was he put in charge of letting these other criminals and troubled priests, those were the only people there in this church, all these troubled people, and he's in charge of either letting them Uh. continue on or not. And he murdered someone, so probably every single person, (laughs) he's like, yeah, you're good. Yeah. Yeah, you're good. What can I say? I murdered someone. What could he say, literally? And I'm sure he didn't have the training. Absolutely not. Like, he was just... Put in charge and probably because they knew um, he's a murderer. He's going to let all these other crappy people go on. And, you know, then no one will know there's all these crappy people as leaders in this church. Now, it's after John's time here at Gemma's Springs that he decides it was time for him to leave the priesthood in the 1970s. Like, finally, goodbye. See ya. No one will miss you. And after this, he gets married and he actually ends up having three children. There's not a lot of information surrounding his wife or his children. Probably a good thing to protect him, uh, not to protect him, to protect them just from being connected to this horrible person. And during this time with his family, they lived in Arizona and he worked at the Society of St. Vincent de Paul as a food charity volunteer before retiring in 2000. So literally is still working kind of within you know, the church. And then he just went on to live his life while he worked, while he was retired. And he just lived for so many years off scot-free until 2002 when Dale Tackney finally decided he could no longer keep John's secret. On April 25th, 2002, Dale first sends a letter to authorities over in San Antonio. He was confused, thinking that this is where the murder took place. Remember, San Antonio is where John was trained as a priest. So in that letter, it was stated, quote, He assaulted her, bound her, and gagged her. He removed her clothing from the waist up and fondled her, end quote. Ugh. I know, disgusting. And I'm sure, like, he kind of said some other things in that letter. I read, like, that Dell said, oh, like, he put her in a bathtub and he he used some sort of well he said that he used some sort of bag to like suffocate her 
and he was leaving the room and she said, oh, I can't breathe. And he left. And then when he came back, she was dead, which I don't believe. No. Like, I don't think she died on her own. Like, it sounded like when he was confessing it to Dale, he was trying to kind of separate himself from it. Like, I left and then I came back and she was dead. Yeah. But I don't think that's true. I think he did it. Yeah. Killed her on purpose after raping her and assaulting her and beating her so that she wouldn't tell on him. Because, again, he just did this to someone else three weeks earlier and he keeps being rumored that it was him. So I think this time he didn't want anyone to know that this assault even happened. Yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah. So eventually, Dell, he does get in contact with the correct authorities. And while I am grateful for the Garza family that Dell finally came forward to try and get the ball rolling again on this case, 42 years going by with John being free was far too long. And this confession, in my opinion, should have taken John down like right after he made it. Like, I don't think Dell should have waited 42 years. No. That's too long. And how many people he ended up letting get out. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I'm like, oh, I'm glad you came forward. But like, I still kind of think you're, you were a little crappy in your decision making, (laughs) you know? Took you a long time. Like you waited till you were all super old. Like, so no one's really facing consequences. I don't know. I just, I don't like it. Yeah, I wonder if he was scared of repercussion from the, his church. I know, and possibly. Yeah. It it seems so out there that someone, like, that a, an organization would even cover something like this up. So, really, like, who knows yeah. what they would have done. And I've heard lots of other just really scary things. Like, did you watch the sisters? Is it the sister's keeper? No. I didn't watch it, but I listened to a podcast on it. And it's all about, you know, this other girl who was in the Catholic church and she was murdered. And basically a ton of people knew and they were like very threatening to those that knew. There was even other like kids that knew one girl he had like this priest had taken her to see the body, but he just like threatened all these people so badly. And he was in collusion with law enforcement and he just really scared everyone and then i always think too like was it just local was it regional was it worldwide i read that at one point in the united states the catholic church did have like a lot of power in the united states Uh uh-huh and obviously like this isn't the people that are in the catholic church that are no you know like corrupt or like bad it's the leaders organization just like the government yes it's like (laughs) the people in it they run our country but a bunch of them are corrupt and most of us are just trying to be good people and live our lives and you know like follow what we believe in yeah yeah it's just crazy that an organization can be that corrupt it like always is hard for me to wrap my mind around because I'm like oh there's no way but like there really is there's all these stories. Yeah, I mean, stories like that have happened in my religion too, you know, like really bishops doing this or that or Oh yeah. You know. There's always going to be bad seeds everywhere. Right. What's really bad is them trying to cover it up. Like just come out and be like, "Yeah, there was this person that was, you know, like bad. He was a leader. It was horrible. Like we We don't condone that. He sucks." That's where it gets like into the organization being corrupt. Like, of course, there's going to be bad people everywhere. Right. But we shouldn't be covering it up. That's kind of where it gives you the bad 
taste in your mouth, you know? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, just, just admit one of your high up, higher ups did stuff and yeah. get them out and move on. But to try just to do that and cover it up and let it happen to more people and it's just so wrong. Yeah. And that's a sad thing is like they literally are in danger. All these other women and like children are in danger. Mm-hmm. So at this time in 2002, Victor Rodriguez was the police chief and he had brought in Rudy Jaramillo, who was a part of a newly formed section of the Texas Rangers. And this was the cold case unit. So it's Rudy who dives headfirst into this investigation when it's reopened and he is able to contact Father Joseph O'Brien. In 1960, Joseph was the assistant pastor of Sacred Heart Church in McAllen. And you know what Joseph told Rudy? Well, he said that shortly after the murder of Irene, John did in fact confess to him that he was responsible for her slaying. This was crazy because only two years earlier in 2000, Joseph O'Brien had gone on to a television program and stated that he didn't know a thing about Irene's murder. Why didn't they do anything? So just another person who knew about the murder even in 2000, is still covering it up when he goes on this television program. But then when it's finally reopened, he's probably too scared to, like, not say something. So he's like, yeah, you know what? He did confess that to me. Could they not use that in his trial? Well, this was just in 2002 that he came forward saying this. Oh. Not in 1960. So this is literally still 42 years later. Yeah, but he was the one working on it, right? So... Couldn't he have presented that evidence? What do you mean? Like, if he admitted to the confession, couldn't he have presented that evidence to get him convicted? So this was reopened in 2002. Rudy gets (laughs) that from Joseph O'Brien. Joseph O'Brien is a priest in the church. That's who he confessed to, not a policeman. Oh. Rudy is the police in 2002 that's talking to Joseph. Joseph is saying that back in 1960, John confess to him oh okay I see so and there's even this taped interview with Joseph O'Brien where it stated quote what happened is we knew he was dangerous okay we shipped him off to monasteries he stayed 10 years then he got married end quote oh good job that's good who cares about the people that he hurt and killed so annoying So at this time, Rene Guerra was the district attorney, and he doesn't have any relation to Maria Guerra. And he had actually been the district attorney since the 1980s all the way until like 2014. But regardless of the new evidence in these confessions being brought forward, Rene wasn't sure about revisiting charges. He felt that there was not enough evidence, and he also felt that the original police work was shoddy. On top of that, he claimed that Joseph O'Brien had dementia when he was being questioned and that Rudy Jaramillo actually inappropriately fed Del Tacney the location of the murder since he originally thought that the murder occurred in San Antonio. For me, Renee seems like he's making a lot of excuses as to why he didn't want to bring charges forward. Could he even have been involved later on in collusion with the Catholic Church on you know, different issues like this. I don't know, but he really ticked off Irene's family after making a super insensitive comment saying, quote, why would anyone be haunted by her death? 
She died. Her killer got away. End quote. Are you kidding? I know. Like, excuse me? Uh, her parents are haunted by it every minute. Yeah. Even if the person was literally behind bars, her family would still be haunted by it. It sounds to me like he's basically saying, you know what? Don't continue to be bothered by her death because we all know what happened and the guy got away with it. Like, move on. You know who killed her. Yeah. Like, oh, who cares? Hate him. <laughs> Most people want justice if their family members are killed. Yeah, I can't even believe he would publicly say that. What? That's insane. Yeah, so even when Renee does bring this case to a grand jury, he doesn't do it until two years after the confessions were brought forward. And then on top of that, he doesn't subpoena John, Dell, or Joseph to the court. So obviously, the grand jury didn't indict John. And then in 2005, one of the main witnesses to a confession, Joseph O'Brien, dies of old age. Why didn't you subpoena them? I don't think he wanted this case to go to trial. Yeah. Now, because of all of this, the case goes back to being a cold case for another decade. Until 2014, when Ricardo Rodriguez starts campaigning to unseat Rene Guerra. Mm -hmm. And I'm with him. Like, yeah, get that dude out. That's what I was going to say. Like, get him out of office. Literally, like, goodbye. So, Ricardo brings up the case of Irene Garza as an issue. And in his campaign, he says that he wants to see Irene's family get justice. And he promises to look into her case again if he was elected. And in late 2014, after the votes come in, it's announced that Ricardo Rodriguez won. Rene kind of panics. I think he knows he messed up with Irene's case. So just days after learning about his loss, he reaches out to Ricardo and he's like, hey, I want to appoint you as a special prosecutor on the Irene Garza case. Like, a surprise. I'm, I'm going to help you do something for oh it. Oh my gosh. But Ricardo, he's not falling for it. He's like, no, man, I'm good. I actually will just take a brand new look at the case myself once I take control of the district attorney's office in January 2015. Yeah, like, no, don't need your help. No, I actually just won. So I'll just do that in a month or two when, you know, I'm in office. Yeah. And Ricardo, he wasn't lying because only four months after taking office, he announces in April 2015 that Irene Garza's case had been reopened. And only one year later, in February of 2016, John Fate was finally arrested. How many years had that been? It had been, so I think by the time, in 2016, I think it was 56 years John was living in Arizona. That's where he was arrested, and he was 83 years old. Oh, my gosh. That is so stupid. So literally lived his entire life. Right. And it's one month later, in March of 2016, that John is extradited back to Texas and imprisoned at the Hidalgo County Sheriff Adult Detention Center. So John enters this plea of not guilty, And there is a bond hearing where prosecution asks for a bond of $750,000, while the defense team says, like, that's not fair. So they ask for a $100,000 bond because John has stage 3 kidney failure and bladder cancer, which, like, okay, I don't care. (laughs) 
He's lived 83 la- years, you know, well, not 83 years because he didn't kill her when he was zero. But, yeah. you know, like he's 83 years old. He's lived his whole life. He's OK. He lived a good life. He can yeah. go through his cancers and kidney failure in prison. He should just so he could suffer. Literally. But thankfully, Judge Lewis Singletary doesn't fall for the pity party and realizes, just like me, that John lived his entire life as a free man guilty of murder. So he sets the bond at $1 million, and John remained in prison while awaiting trial. He ended up going under medical supervision at the Hidalgo County Jail. And in February of 2017, the judge sets a trial date for April 2017. But just before the trial is set to start, the defense files for a change of venue, saying that the media basically painted John as a murderer already. There was this 700-page document filed when they asked for this change of venue, and they included reports from the media that stated John only got away from the prosecution for so long because the Catholic Church had protected him, which is pretty much true. But it was on May 24th that Judge Singletary hears these arguments and regardless of the 700 page document, he denies the request. And John Fate's trial ends up starting on November 28th, 2017. There were a ton of people that testify here about John's creepy behavior, how he was super weird. But what really shocked me was the testimony from Daryl Davis and Father Thomas Doyle. So Daryl is a former reporter who testified about a meeting that was an off-the-record meeting, and it happened in 1962. So Daryl, he testifies that the DA at the time stated in this meeting that they knew John had murdered Irene Garza and not to worry because he would be sent to a monastery, which we know he was in fact sent to a monastery. Daryl also stated that in this meeting, it was clear the church and law enforcement knew John killed Irene and they offered him a deal saying that in exchange for his plea in the Maria Guerra case, they would not prosecute him for Irene's murder. What? It's ridiculous. So that's really why he took that plea and got that $500 fine. Yeah, they were in cahoots. Yeah, because I kind of wondered when I was reading it, like I was like, well, is the law enforcement in, you know, yeah, like in this with the Catholic Church? Because they still did prosecute him, you know, for the Maria assault. And when I read this, it like made so much sense to me because yeah, yeah, they were, they were in on it. Obviously like, yeah. So they were in cahoots. So Mike Garza, he's actually also not, it's like so many people have the same last names, but he's not related to Irene in any way. He was actually the assistant district attorney prosecuting this case. And he stated, quote, The institution who is in the business of seeking salvation for others was complicit in covering up this murder, end quote. (sighs) Just crazy that people can just have like straight disregard for a human life. I know. Just to protect their organization themselves. It's dumb. Really nutty. So on August 1st, 1960, three months after Irene was discovered murdered, there was this letter written from Father J.F. Paulicki, and it's written to the head of the southern region of the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate. 
and this is Father Lawrence J. Seidel. So Paulicki, he never mentions John by name in this letter, but he wrote about advice he received from the sheriff. Quote, the prosecution must be made to see just how weak their case is. Least they go off half-cocked and set the wheels into motion that would bring this out in public print and give the opponents of the church a field day. After three or four months, or even less if possible, have this young man transferred to another part of the country as a normal obedience. He feels that everyone knows that priests are always being transferred around, so this would not be strange. After some time in his new place, a year or two, then have him sent out to a foreign mission. The reason for this first move is to get him out of the area of suspicion. If something happens, the officers of the area will always be suspicious of him. The sheriff concludes that the longer time we have, the weaker the case gets. He has much experience in such things, and I believe this is extremely wise. He is also a Catholic, and he also stands to lose materially by such a scandal here in such a non-Catholic area, end quote. Mm. Just like straight up shows that this was a big cover up. Yeah. Yes. So Thomas Doyle, he's the other man whose testimony stuck out to me. Thomas is a Catholic priest that was ordained in the 1970s. And he has been the expert witness in clergy abuse cases all around the world. So he said about the letter, quote, In my experience in the thousands of documents I've studied, it's the first time I've seen any organized plan of obfuscation, obfuscation, I don't know how to say that, collusion and cover-up played out step-by-step in coordination with the civilian law enforcement, end quote. And he goes on to explain that if it went public that this pri- that this priest had murdered someone, that would be super bad publicity for the church. And he says something that literally came to my mind as soon as I read that. I thought, okay, well, what seems worse to me than a priest murdering someone and the church condemning him for it and coming out and saying this is horrible, we don't support it, is the church covering up and hiding it. Oh, yeah, that's way worse. Yeah. And Thomas, he echoed that thought, saying, quote, The true scandal in my professional estimation is engineering the cover-up or not allowing or permitting or insisting that this man followed the course of justice. That is the scandal, end quote. Yeah, it is. And it's like, yeah, duh. Where's, like, the common sense with all these people who were doing this? I know. I don't get it. It's like, where's their conscience? Irene's family is also in your church. Or at least Irene was. I actually don't know about her parents, but. Yeah. Like, that was also a member of your church. Like, people would stand behind you a lot more for coming out and being like, oh, my gosh. Like, this is horrible. We are so sad for her. Yeah, I do not understand that one bit. No, it's, like, mind-blowing. Like, wrong is wrong, no no matter how you justify it. I don't care who I know that murders someone. They're getting told on by me. I don't care if you murder someone. I'm probably going to tell on you. Good. I hope you do. <laughs> don't cover that up for people. It's just, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. No 100%. matter your religion. Regardless of your ties to all of it. It's weird. Right. So Thomas, he also points out that church officials and law enforcement at this time in their correspondence 
don't seem to ever mention Irene or her family. They weren't concerned with what happened to her. They were only concerned about hiding it. And then there's this man named Terry Mickernan, and he is the founder of Bishop Accountability. And that's an organization mentioned on CBSNews.com in this article about a 48 hours episode on this case produced by Josh Gaynor. And Terry's organization specializes in monitoring abuse within the Catholic Church. He explains the moving around that the church did with John as what some people refer to as geographic solution. And back then, it was the standard way for dealing with abuse allegations. Now, remember, we know he was charged in the sexual assault of Maria Guerra. Well, when that arrest warrant was first issued, no one could find John. And a week goes by before John finally surrenders himself, stating that he was not guilty of the crime and he was not hiding. No, he was just at an out-of-state hospital that he checked himself into because he felt that his nervous system was shutting down due due to all the stress of these allegations. He also tells police he needed some mental help in the hospital because he developed a fear of women. Like, oh... You fear women, the people you attack and kill. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hopefully what he was fearing was maybe being haunted by the woman he murdered. I hope she was like coming in and freaking him out. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Now, Thomas Doyle, our clergy abuse expert witness, he explains this by saying that in the 60s and even into the 70s and 80s when priests were accused of sexual abuse, they were sent to specialized healthcare facilities. And in John's case, he was sent to a place called Alexia Brothers, who took in priests and promised anonymity. So they literally would send these priests not only to the different like religious homes, but they would send them to hospitals to help cover, again, their sexual abuse allegations. To be the devil's advocate, like I'm glad they have places like that and glad they have like want to help and maybe help rehabilitate people. But you still need to do it in the right way. Like, I, I, I don't think prisons and stuff are good at that. I think our society can become better yeah. at, at rehabilitation and stuff. And, and, I, and that's great that the Catholic Church, you know, maybe had facilities like that. But it's like they shouldn't have taken it into their own hands to decide the punishment uh, for these people for this murder. Yeah, because it makes it seem like these rehabilitation places, like it makes it seem like that's not the goal. Yeah. Like even though it should be, like the rehabilitation, like you said, is good, but it's like when they're just covering up things for people, it's like, did you really want to rehabilitate them or did you want a front for hiding them? Yeah, exactly. It's just sad. Now, thankfully, after all the testimony concluded, the jury found John Fate guilty on December 7th. The next day, the defense asked that John only receive probation. They asked the jury to look at John's life since his last convictions in Maria's case. He hadn't been convicted of any other crimes since, and, you know, he's like so old. But the prosecution symbolically asks for a conviction of 57 years. This mirrored the amount of time that had passed since Irene Garza was murdered. And on December 8, 2017, the jury pronounced a sentence of life in prison. 
John was sent to the WJ unit 10 miles north of central Huntsville, Texas, where he lived for just a little more than two years before dying of natural causes on February 12, 2020. So he lived to be 83 years old and he only spent two years in prison for the murder of Irene. Ugh, that just is so wrong. It makes me sick. I'm glad he was finally caught, at least at the end of his life. Even though it was only two years, at least he didn't die as a free man. Yeah, and were Irene's parents, had they passed by then? John was 27 at the time he committed this murder. And so then he was 83. So, yeah, they had to have passed by this time. Yeah. 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 But I know she had some cousins there. Just sad that they never got to see justice. And I'm sure they just kind of... They also knew who it was all this time. And just to know that he was out living, that would have been very frustrating. That would be so hard. How could you even go on with, like, I I would become so obsessive. I don't think I could move on in life. No, like, I literally think I would have to refrain from hunting this person down and hurting them. (laughs) Like, if I knew someone was out there that had killed my child, my daughter, yeah. Like, I think I, I would... I would be the one going to prison for murder because I would find them. I really would. Like, I would just be like, all right, I'm going out. I'm going out like this. But then you wouldn't be around for your other kids. They can visit me in prison. Oh. I'm just kidding. I'm not advocating. I'm not advocating for, like, what is that called? Um, like revenge? Vigilante justice. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I still would. Well, This scandal, like we kind of talked about earlier, it put the faithful members of the Catholic Church in direct danger of a disgusting person. And unfortunately, it's not the only huge scandal and cover-up of a priest's actions in that church. Hopefully today with people like Thomas Doyle and Terry McEarnan, they can continue to fight for justice and safety for people who want to love the good part of their religion. Irene Garza was a dedicated member who was smart and determined and caring. She deserved so much more from a place that she loved with her whole heart, from an organization she dedicated her life to, a place where she found comfort and where John savagely stole all that comfort away from her. My heart is with her family, and I am so glad that after 57 years, Irene was finally able to have some peace and her family got the justice they always deserved. This podcast was research, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Visit Terry McKiernan's organization, bishopaccountability.org. I will also be linking it in our show notes. I'm Charlie Waters, and I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser, and it's going to be the best ever. We are going to be talking about the Earth. The, did you know that the Earth is made of water? 71% of the Earth's surface is covered in water. And the ocean holds like 96% of all Earth water. But there's also water in ice, wi- rivers, water. And waters, lakes.
and there's also water in the ground. And guess what? There's also water in us and your pets. Even lions and cheetahs and elephants and giraffes. That's a ton of water. And my mom's here helping me remember all my questions. Thanks for listening to me.